it was only a month or so ago since I was here, and uh, when I spoke to you last, does anyone remember what chapter we looked at? Well, it's a hard question. It was, uh, give you a clue, it was in the book of 1 Peter, and it was chapter 5, and we were looking at eldership or church leadership and the need to be servant leaders. Well, this morning we're going to carry on from where we left last time, which was talking about the leadership essentials, and we're going to look at the second part of this, so... Um, This morning we're going to do that. But last time we were here we discussed how it is a good thing to to have a desire to be a a leader in the church, whether it's uh, up here as a pastor or a preacher or sharing, serving, uh, whether it's you as a parent at home. It doesn't matter what area that you are in, God calls you to lead. But he calls you to lead as a servant. And we also talked about uh, how the enemy, the The devil is like a roaring lion who goes around seeking whom he may devour. And uh, so we gave that as a warning because one of the targets that he has is the church leaders. Because if he can take out the church leaders, then he he can destroy the flock and make easy pickings of the rest of us. So we need to pray for our church leaders. Instead of going home and talking about what an awful thing that these elders at church have been doing to us and what are they trying to do and, and complaining and carrying on like that, we need to be praying for them. And uh, if we could do that, it would make such a big difference in our attitude toward them and toward each other. Well, the thing that I want to talk about this morning is uh, leadership in the terms of one of the greatest um, examples that we have in the, in the Bible. And uh, his name was, was Moses. And Moses was humble How do we know that? Well, Numbers 12 verse 3 tells us that Moses was a very humble man, humbler than anyone else on the face of the earth. And he was the greatest um, prophet that led the children of Israel. St. Augustine once wrote this quote. He says, Do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. You plan a tower that will pierce the clouds? Lay first the foundation of humility. You can't build a a large skyscraper without having a firm and solid foundation. In 1980, Mac Davis, who was uh, a country superstar, uh, have we got a picture of him up there somewhere? Um, I can't see anything on the back, so I have to look up there. There he is. You younger ones won't remember him, but um, some of you older ones might. His girlfriends, actually. (laughs) If, if, if you were um, famous and you were, knew you'd done well, you got on The Muppet Show when we were young. And uh, he was one of the ones that was a guest star on The Muppet Show. You knew you'd made it. Well, he uh, had a big hit song that uh, started with him talking to the crowd and he said this, something like this, and imagine a, I'll try and sort of do a, a broad American out, uh, draw, but it won't be like his, but... He said, um, back a few months ago, I was um, headlining in a great big nightclub. And uh, they put me up a couple of days early, and they put me up in what they call the the star suite. Now, here I am, headlining one of the biggest uh, nightclubs in the country, and I wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning all by myself in the star suite. And then the crowd goes, oh, and yeah, that's right, oh. But I did what I've always done, man, and... uh, I, to cheer myself up, I, I picked up my guitar and I sat down and I wrote me a little song. And uh, Now this is how it feels to be alone at the top of the hill, trying to figure out why. And I'm not going to sing the song, but it's, 
He said uh, that these were the words of the first verse. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a heck of a man. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Yes, humility. That's what we're talking about this morning. I think it's a, a hard one to talk about, and I th- especially when I think about Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which says, He that is the Lord has shown you people what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So how exactly does one walk humbly with God? Today we're going to look at the humblest man who ever lived. As we already read, Moses was very humble. He was humbler than anyone else on the the face of the earth. Micah 6 verse 8 tells us that God expects us all to walk humbly with the Lord our God. And so being a, a Bible teacher, one of the things that I like to do is to go and have a look at the dictionary and find out what the dictionary says about this word humble to see if I could understand what it really means. The compact Oxford Dictionary defines humble as having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. The Cambridge English Dictionary says being humble is not being proud or not believing that you are important. And as an example, it says he's very humble about his success. Um, Most of you younger ones will probably go to the computer and have a look at Google and so on. And so the dictionary.com says... Being humble is not proud or arrogant. It is to be modest, to be humble, although successful. The Collins English Dictionary says, A humble person is not proud and does not believe that they are better than other people. So you get the idea that this word humility or humble is, um, is something which you're self-effacing. The Rogier's Thesaurus has a whole lot of synonyms that speak about being humble, including being meek, being modest, being unpretentious, showing due deference or proper respect, being unassuming, being reserved, being self-effacing, being unpresumptuous, unostentatious, unobtrusive, not boastful, reflecting or expressing or offering uh, in a spirit of uh, deference or submission, ranking low in the hierarchy or scale, insignificant, unpretentious. So I thought, oh, it would be a good idea to have a look and see what the opposite of um, being humble is and to see what the antonyms are for this. And so we see the opposite of being humble is to be arrogant or assertive, being bumptious, being conceited, egotistical, proud and pretentious, haughty or high-handed, stuck up, lording it over others. And remember in First Peter it says that the leaders are not to lord it over others. They need to be humble. Uh, the opposite of being humble is being a snob, putting on airs, being aloof, being rude and insolent, self-asserting, and so it goes on. I could do, there's a whole lot more that, uh, that we could mention, but I won't do that here. But it re- these words all sort of remind me of um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when Paul was describing what love is and what it is not. Many of those words apply in that chapter. 
So what does it mean to walk humbly with your God? Again, Paul sheds some light on it for us in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. It seems to me that the elemental meaning in humble is deference to one another or respect to others. Deference does mean respect shown for another person. And that's especially true when that person's experience, knowledge, age or power is greater than yours. You can't be humble without deferring to the other person or to the other party. And so to walk humbly with God is to defer to him, to show him proper respect, to listen carefully to what he says and to be obedient to what he asks us to do. Psalm 1 verse 2 says, Happy is the person who meditates on God's law both day and night. So that is part of this deference or respect for God, is meditating on or thinking about his word and attending to it humbly before God. It's one way to act in deference to God. In fact, you could say that's the only way of hearing from God. So we need to be uh, properly respectful for God and listen to what he's saying to us in his word. And this morning I want to share a lot of his word this morning as we talk about humility. So it's a fundamental rule, if you like, for the Christian today. Simply to live out Micah chapter 6 verse 8. That is to act justly, to act as God would have you act. To show constant love, as the Good News um, Bible or translation says, and humbly with your God. You can't go wrong if you're listening to him all day. And this puts a reluctant truth into the line of the song above that I referred to at the start. It is hard to be humble. There's a natural tendency in us to be pride, uh, to have pride and to be boastful about what we have achieved. It is hard to be humble. We have to work at it because acting in love and acting justly and being fully attentive to what God asks us to do is not natural for the average sinner. We have to train ourselves to do this. It's not going to happen instantly. We won't get it right automatically. We have to work at it. And so we need to forget one-upmanship. This humble stuff is not restricted to God. When we walk humbly, it, it's the way that we treat other people with that same polite deference that we have for God. We need to treat each other in the same way. I can say that, that um, most of the real truths that I learned in my life came from listening to and watching and observing my family. I remember on Sunday afternoons after church, going home to my grandparents' place out in Turakina Valley and uh, listening to my grandfather and my father and others sitting around after the, the, the dinner at lunchtime. And it was always a good meal, big roast Sunday meal. It was great. I enjoyed that. But we used to sit around afterwards and discuss the scriptures. And I used to sit there and drink it all in. I learned a lot by listening to what they had to say and by watching and seeing how they lived their lives. If we are into one-upmanship or trying to score points against the other person, we'll never learn anything from them, apart from how silly we look. Let's have a look at one incident in Moses' life, when he was under criticism from those nearest and dearest to him. Yeah, he had plenty of criticism and complaints from the children of Israel in the desert, 
he had to deal with all sorts of complaints and moaning and, and um, different things that they brought up against him. They complained right from the very start. 40 years earlier when he tried to help them, um, when he intervened between two men who were fighting, as a consequence he had to run from Pharaoh and it was um, Pharaoh who was troubled by Moses' presence in the court and he didn't know how to deal with him because this guy was someone who was a threat to his kingdom. You see, he was raised as a princess's son and uh, he was uh, probably going to inherit the throne after this guy died and he didn't really want that. He wanted someone else to be uh, the, the next pharaoh because he knew where Moses came from. When he came back 40 years later, they still complained. You've made life tougher for us because you asked Pharaoh to let us go. At the Red Sea, they thought that they were trapped and they began to complain. In the desert, they got thirsty and they began to uh, murmur against Moses. Then they got sick of the manna and they wanted meat to eat. And so it went on and on. All the way through the desert, you see this, this cycle of complaints and murmuring and um, dissatisfaction with the way Moses was leading them. But now we come to a more personal complaint. It was leveled at him by his brother and sister. It's bad enough having criticism from other people, but when it comes from those who are close to us, that's really tough to take. We read about this in Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and, Moses, uh, Miriam and Aaron opposed Moses. We read about this in chapter 12 of Numbers. And verse 1 says, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses or complain against Moses, or complain about Moses, because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. I don't know whether you've ever thought about this word, what's a Cushite? Well, let's ask ourselves that question, who was Moses' Cushite wife? You see, in some translations, this word Cushite is translated as Ethiopian. Now, Ethiopia is south of Egypt. South of Egypt's borders lay darkest Africa. People there had very dark or black skins and they were different to the Egyptians and to the other peoples who lived around the Mediterranean coast. Exodus chapter 2 is where we read about Moses' marriage. In chapter 2 verse 15 says this, When, Mo when Pharaoh heard of this, that's about um, uh, Moses being the one who killed the Egyptian taskmaster, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and to fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Well, some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flocks. And when the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew the water for us and watered the flock. Well, where is he, said Rule. Why did you leave him? Why don't you invite him to have something to eat? And so they must have gone out and found Moses and brought him back to their home. I don't know why they didn't do that in the first place. But uh, anyway, their father told them to do this. And so they went out and invited Moses. And, and Moses agreed to stay with the man and uh, this man, Rule, gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. 
Then later on, Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Now, I'm going to put a map up on the screen there, and um, I'm not sure if you can all see that, but over here on the left, we have Egypt, and below Egypt is Cush. Up in the north there, I've circled at the land of Goshen. That's where the children of Israel were working as slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh. Then in between, we have the Sinai Peninsula, and then you go up to the top right-hand corner, and you've got Canaan and the land of uh, Moab, and then Edom coming further down. And then down at the bottom here, uh, on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba, is Midian. So it's quite a long way from Egypt. So Moses ran from Egypt all the way across here to Midian. It uh, must have been a great journey. Uh, and I don't know how he did it on foot or whether he had a camel or what, I don't know, but he got as far away from Egypt as he could. And that's where he ended up. So we now have this question. Is Zipporah a Midianite or is she an Ethiopian? That's what Cush means, Ethiopia, down to the south. It's a good question. And a lot of uh, Bible scholars have tried to answer this question. Well, um, Moses was brought up in Egypt, and uh, in fact he was raised by the princess in Pharaoh's court, and for 40 years he had been educated and prepared to rule the mighty nation of Egypt. But that we referred to before as mistake was killing one of the taskmasters to protect one of the Israelite uh, slaves. And so um, he thought it was all done in secret, and uh, he'd hidden the body away, I presume, and uh, that body must have been found. And the authorities were on the hunt for the the killer and then Moses the next day when he intervened between these two guys that were fighting um, he realized that that they knew who he was and that he was the one who had killed it and he thought well it won't take long before Pharaoh finds out because someone's bound to blab this one and uh, so uh, he realized that he was in danger and he took off to go all the way across here to uh, to Midian now who was Midian Who were the Midianites? Well, they were descendants of Abraham. They were descendants of Abraham. You see, after Sarah died, Abraham took another wife. Her name was Keturah. In um, Genesis chapter 25, Abraham, it says in verse 1, taken another wife whose name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shur. And down to verse 4, the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephah, Hanok, Abadah, and Eldaiah. And these were the descendants of Keturah. And so it was over in Midian, and the descendants of, of the son of Keturah, the son of, Ab- uh, the son of Abraham, or the grandson of Abraham, um, well, no, sorry, his, his son, in Midian, he met this woman called Zipporah. Rule. Now, she's all, he is also known in the Bible as Jethro. And uh, those who watch um, uh, CSI, or whatever, not CSI, what is it, NCIS, they'll know that, recognize that name Jethro. It's an old Bible name. And so Jethro, or Rule, was this Midianite priest. Now, clearly, Midian was not in Africa. And the descendants of Midian would not have been black Africans. So how do we explain this discrepancy? Was Zipporah, Moses' wife, a Midianite or an Ethiopian? Well, many Bible commentators think the Cushite woman referred to in Numbers chapter 12 
was Zipporah, and they go to some lengths to redefine the meaning of the word Cushite, identifying Cush with a, a tribe called Cushan, uh, as in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Apparently, Cushan uh, was a tribe or a confederacy of tribes allied to but different from Midian. So that's one way of explaining it. Others say that the word Cushite mean, here means someone of great and lasting beauty. Someone that we think of today as having great beauty that has lasted into old ages, um, Betty White. She was quite a looker when she was young, but even today she's still a very attractive lady. Unfortunately, not all of Hollywood's beauties have been blessed as Betty White has. The next example, Goldie Horn. She was a beautiful young lady, but life has done that to her today. Take that off so that you're not having to stare at it all the time, but thank you. Um, and so commentators suggest that um, her father, Rule or Jethro, was an Ethiopian. Uh, sorry, I'll go back to that one. With the, with the great beauty, that's what they, they say the word Cushite means, that it was a, a beautiful lady even though she was old. Others commentators say that her father, Rule or Jethro, was an Ethiopian who worked as a, a priest among the Midianite people. So maybe she was of black African descent that way. Interestingly, the Jewish rabbis take a different view. They say that Moses had two wives. And that's not unusual if you think about the Old Testament. I mean, uh, we'll talk about Solomon shortly, but um, David had more than one wife. Many of the Old Testament ones had more than one wife. Jacob had more than one wife. Well, Josephus tells us in his writings, Antiquities of the Jews, and I've read the story, haven't read the whole book. I mean, if you've ever seen it, the tiny little print, it's pretty hard to read. But Josephus tells us the story about Moses. He was a general, apparently, in the Egyptian army before um, his exile to Midian. Midian. This episode in Moses' life isn't recorded in the Bible, so we don't know if it's true or not, but it's an interesting story. And briefly, the story goes something like this. The Ethiopian army had invaded southern Egypt and it was advancing on Memphis, not Tennessee, but the original Memphis, which was in Egypt. And Moses was sent by Pharaoh to lead the Egyptian army to counterattack the Ethiopians and drive them back beyond the border between the two countries. Well, Moses did this successfully, but he could not capture the Ethiopian capital city of Sabah, um, which was built on an island in the Nile River. And it was heavily fortified, and Moses, with his land army, couldn't get across the water to attack the city of um, Sabah. Well, that was until the Ethiopian princess named Princess Thabas, she sent on envoy, or envoys to Moses saying that she would surrender to him and surrender the city to him if Moses married her. Yeah, you think, what a, what a strange thing. I mean, why would someone offer to marry a guy that she didn't even know. Well, <clears throat> the marriage would end the war and would be a sign of a peace treaty between the two nations. This was quite a common practice in those days, especially in the Old Testament times, and we illustrate that with the lives, or the wi many wives of King Solomon. He took these wives to seal a treaty with the surrounding nations, a peace treaty. First, 
Kings chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. You see, they would intermarry, and, and the, the marriage would be a sign of the peace treaty between them, because if your wife was the wife of the enemy, um, there was the, an influence there that would say, don't attack. And Pharaoh wouldn't attack Solomon because Solomon's wife was his daughter. And so it goes on in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters who were Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. I just can't even, can't even think. It's, it's just beyond me. 700 wives. I mean, one's enough. But 700? No way. But that's what he did. And they led him astray, just as God said they would. Well, going back to the story about Moses, according to Josephus, Moses captured the city of um, Zaba and he honoured his part in the bargain by marrying the Ethiopian princess. And so she was left behind in Egypt when Moses ran away to Midian. Accordingly, the story goes, that on Moses' return to Egypt 40 years later, he discovered Thabas, his Ethiopian wife, was still alive. So he took her with him on the exodus when Israel left Egypt. Then in the desert, after Jethro brought Zipporah and Moses' sons to him to be reunited with Moses, we end up with two women as Moses' wives. Now whatever happened, for some reason in chapter 12, tells us that a dispute broke out between um, Moses and Miriam and Aram. And it rose up, Miriam and, and Aaron rose up to challenge Moses about his Ethiopian wife. We don't know what the dispute was, but he, they had complaints about him, or about her or his treatment of her. We're not sure what it was all about, but we continue reading in Numbers chapter 12 from verse 2 with Miriam and Aaron asking this. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, humbler than anyone else on the face of the earth. And that's in parenthesis. And I can hear the Bible critics already getting on the bandwagon and saying this. Well, if Moses was such a humble man, how come he wrote this about himself? I mean, if you're humble, you don't write that you're the most humble person there ever was. You'd sound a bit like President Trump. Nobody does it better than I do. But um, anyway... Nobody does humility better than me, Moses, but that's not the case. How could he write that about himself? Well, the answer is simple. 1 Timothy 6, sorry, 3 verse 16a says, All scripture is God-breathed. 2 Peter 2 verse 20 to 21 says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, or no words of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy, or the word of God, never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through hu though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now Moses is a humble servant of God, 
wrote down what God told him to write. And he was probably embarrassed at this point by the statement, but he was obedient to God as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, and he recorded this remarkable statement about himself. And this is the key point to remember in the following discourse. And we go back to Numbers chapter 12, verse 4. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. And so the three of them went out. And then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, and he stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. And when the two of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in, various, uh, sorry, in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then would you, were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left. And when the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. She became as white as snow. And Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease or leprosy. And he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin that we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like that stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. And so Moses cried out to the Lord, Please God, heal her. And the Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spat in her face, would, not, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days, and after that she can be brought back. And so Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on till she was brought back. And after that the people left Hazaroth, and they camped in the desert of Paran. Now Moses had been confronted on this occasion by Miriam and Aaron, his own sister and brother. So humble that he didn't know what to say when they made these accusations against them. He was probably thinking to himself, how could they be so cruel? And as he examined himself to see if there was any truth in the accusation, before he could speak to defend himself, God stepped in. He calls the three siblings outside the tent and he defends Moses before Miriam and Aaron. James chapter 4 verse 6 says, he, but, he opposes, sorry, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. 1 Peter 5 verse 5 says, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders, all of you, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Second Chronicles 7 verse 14. God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Matthew 23 verse 12, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. James 4 verse 6, he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. 
Galatians 5.13 You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Just do it. So think about that old song, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble. Yeah, it's hard for us to be humble. But God has repeated this requirement over and over again in the scriptures, both old and new. Listen, if he tells us to do something once, it's important that we take note of what he says. If he tells us to do something twice, then it's doubly important. But if he repeats it again and again, like he has with these verses that we've just read, then it's vitally important that we take note of it. But more than take note, we need to put it into practice. So if he tells us over and over again to be humble, then it must be vitally important for us to live humble lives. We need to do this. We need to make humility part of our lives, our everyday lives. If you want to grow in your walk with the Lord, try walking humbly with your God. I've got a cartoon to put up there. And uh, how well it's come up, but it says, Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. No one likes me, says the guy. I'm not worthy. Everyone's better than me. My next one, it's thinking of yourself less. Can I help you with that? The act of humility. That's how we need to live our lives. Thinking less of yourself. Rather, it's thinking of yourself less. Humbling yourself so you can serve others. O oh Lord, it's hard to be humble, but we need your help to do it your way. If we were going to change the words of that song, I think that's the sort of tone that we'd need to take. Can you imagine what our homes would be like if we all had a servant attitude and we were all humble in our interactions with each other? Just think about it for a minute. What would it be like to live in a home like that? If all of us here were to do this, what sort of church would we have here today? If we could influence our community, imagine what Wanganui East would be like if we lived in a community like this with everyone being humble. And what sort of country would we live in? Walk humbly with your God. It might be hard to be humble, but we must do it. God bless and thank you.